millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There is a profound difference between being pro-market and being pro-business. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman. CapEx's editor. We are said to be living in an age of rapid technological transformation, with another game-changing new gadget just around the corner, and innovations overhauling everything from how we communicate to what jobs we do. But is our economic system really as innovative as we think? Not according to this week's guest. Frederick Erickson argues that far from being dominated by swashbuckling entrepreneurs, the version of Western capitalism in place today is defined by a dreary managerialism and a stultifying aversion to risk. The result is slow growth, stagnating living standards, and unhappy voters. Frederick sets out this argument in a book called The Innovation Illusion, How So Little Is Created by So Many Working So Hard, which he wrote with co-author Bjorn Weigel a few years ago. Frederick is also the director of the European Centre for International Political Economy, a think tank based in Brussels. For the podcast this week, we spoke about the ways in which we have lost our way economically, what that means politically, and what we can do to rediscover the recipe for success. My first question was on just how revolutionary the latest technology really is. Yes, indeed. I mean, there is substantial technological change going on uh, in different parts of society. I mean, mm-hmm. just look at the, um, the effect of the introduction of the iPhone uh, a little bit more than 10 years ago and how it's changed the way that we connect with family, the way we order things, uh, book our gym classes, the way we get our transport tickets, etc. So, I mean, there's obviously a lot of thing going on um, in society as well as in the economy. Um, I think, however, that we are having this illusion that we are living perhaps in the most innovative time ever, um, that many of the changes that we've seen in our private lives just because we're flicking on the screens often leads us to believe that the whole economy has changed profoundly as a consequence of technology. But I think this is a very sort of Marxist idea about the economy, that you just plug in a lot of technology into the economy and suddenly it's going to behave in a different way. My view is much more based in sort of classic Josef Schumpeter idea of the economy, which is basically going to make the argument that technology is important, but it's important in the sense that it affects people to stop doing things they've been doing in the past in the past and to start doing new things mm. so it's about behavioral change it's about getting markets and economic agents to behave in different manners than they did in the past and i think on that score we're not seeing as much innovation or as much change in society as a consequence of new technology as we often believe 
And so, so you draw a distinction between technological change and, 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 and sort of productivity growth and innovation and so on. And, and why is there that gap? I mean, what's the, um, what, why does one not necessarily follow from the other? Well, I mean, you can have lots of different changes in your production factors, in technology, in capital, in labor, that is not going to lead you to a better economy. It's mm-hmm. not going to force you to behave in a smarter way. So just because you are increasing the supply of something doesn't mean that you are going to get a qualitative difference in the economy. And I think sort of the, the, the main difference here is between understanding that innovation is something that happens on markets, in economic organizations, that is, in companies. Uh, it's about how labor starts to behave differently as a consequence of of uh, sometimes technology, sometimes other factors could be sort of more trade or globalization. Um, um, uh, but we have to go down sort of to that level in order to understand why innovation is happening or why innovation is not happening, at least as much as, uh, at least not to the degree that we think it, it's, it's happening. Um, and I think this is the sort of the grand illusion of the discussion right now that mm. we we just assume that because we read about all these magnificent magnificent stuff that is going on mm. AI machine learning big data we just assume that well plug that into any corporation and you're going to see an explosion of fantastic creative productive uh, economic changes to happen in these organizations, but that's 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 not what's going on in real life. In real life, you have lots of corporations that struggle to find a way to integrate, to plug technology into the type of organizations they have, and to get uh, labor and their capital structure to work much better than it did in the past. Um, you have lots of companies that are struggling in order to get a foothold on the market with a new product they come with on the back of new technologies. And that is about sort of pure market behavior, competition, about entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and the extent to which there is space in the market for new things to come in and compete with incumbent products, incumbent organizations. And what we've seen over the past couple of decades is that that space has been shrinking. It's far more difficult right now to step into the market and compete with something new than it was 20, even 40 years ago. Okay, so let's let's go into sort of some of the reasons why that might be. Uh, I think in your book, um, you describe them as the, the four horsemen of the of, of capitalist capitalism's decline. Um, so, do you want to just quickly, uh, for those who haven't read the book, do you want to sort of run through the the horsemen and uh, and and the ways in which they're undermining innovation? Yes. So, the book is pointing to four factors that, uh, in my view, helps to explain why capitalism in our Western form has become. Uh, much less dynamic uh, in the past. And we can measure dynamism in different ways, but in the book we go into different factors like entrepreneurship, um, competition in different markets, um, uh, investments in R&D, investments in generally by business, uh, and a host of different other factors. And what we're trying to show is that there has gradually, over the past 40, 50 years, been a pretty profound change in the way that companies behave in terms of trying to build uh, revenue models that are are, are going to uh, sort of be sustainable over over sort of a period of time, uh, meaning that we have seen 
sort of a gradual erosion of the role of investments, the role of R&D in, 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 in companies. And that's going basically hand in hand with the development where we've seen um, uh, companies have become larger, they have stronger market power, they act in much more sophisticated way in order to reduce uh, real life and death competition on markets. So it's, 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 it's a change that we've tracked over 40, 50 years. The four factors then that we use to try to explain mm. this is firstly looking at the ownership of Western capitalism and you know trying to get to the point what capitalism, which is about. Capitalism is about ownership. We're talking about private ownership of, of firms. I mean, that's one of the classic definitions of capitalism. What we've seen over the past 50 years is a gradual erosion of private ownership in our economies, moving away from of having sort of real entrepreneurs, real capitalists that own firms, invest in firms, and, and, and um, use these firms in order to compete in very hard ways, to having large institutions, pension funds and others that largely control most of the large enterprises that exist in the Western world these days. These, uh, these institutions, they... Uh, they are not real capitalists in the mm -hmm. sense that they don't spend their own money. They are managing other people's money. They tend to prefer investees that behave in predictable way ways. They want to have a safe return on the investments they make in company. They don't take ownership responsibility in the firms that they invest in simply because if you work for you know BlackRock or Vanguard or any other large institutions, you're not you know especially good at running a company. I mean, what you do is that you're a portfolio manager, and that's what you're good at, not at you know strategizing for how this business is going to be even more successful in the future. So this change with moving away from private ownership into a type of capitalist system where institutions basically controls the ownership function of firms is the first factor we mm -hmm. are, are discussing. The second one is about managerialism, how we have been, again, stung by this bee of overly bureaucratic managerialist solution for how to uh, structure organizations, how to manage people, um, leading to this explosion of internal company rules and you know different sort of maps about how people should behave in different circumstances quite often in order to reduce uncertainty and to reduce the risk that you actually do something that may lead to sort of big headlines in the newspaper the other day but that has sort of reduced the spirit of experimentation the ability of companies to actually work with uncertainty and work with markets that are behaving in unpredictable ways. So this form of managerialism um, is, uh, to an extent, I mean, it's very much connected to sort of globalization and the fact that the um, uh, the the development we've had over the past 30, 40 years um, has encouraged organizations that are technocratic, very skilled at building logistics operations, finance operations, um, uh, which requires a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of organization, but they, what they're not good at is, is encouraging experimentation, new thinking, ex encouraging entrepreneurship. Um, third factor, and I'd say third and fourth factor concerns basically uh, regulation. The fact that we had generally um, a development of the past 25 years when 
that wave of economic liberalism that started in the late 1970s in the Western world has, has ended. And we have been on, again, a trend where eco classic economic regulations, classic market regulations have gone up and made it far more difficult to enter markets and to compete. Related to that is that we also had the development of a new type of regulations that occurred, which is regulations that doesn't really deal with classic, it's not classic economic regulations. Mm -hmm. It's much more sort of health and safety, environmental, uh, consumer type of regulations that are written in a way that sort of almost intentionally creates a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity about what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do uh, if you operate on a particular market. So we have, for instance, um, regulations based on precautionary principles, which is something that in the abstract may sound you know, perfectly okay, but when you start to drill this down to what it means for what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, it creates a lot of uncertainty for companies, which means that they are quite often stopping different R&D plans they have, stopping ideas to introduce new products on the market simply because they don't know if, if, if this is going to be on the right side of the law or not. And it's that uncertainty, not knowing whether you can do this or you can't do this, that is also what is helping to uh, basically sort of frustrate that space for experimentation that previously existed in, in, many, in many firms, but do that to a far less than today. And you mentioned um, Joseph Schumpeter earlier. Uh, his, obviously, his big prediction about capitalism was that the uh, internal kind of inconsistencies within the system and the furious rate of innovation would create these tensions that would eventually take capitalism to a, to a breaking point. And he's actually very pessimistic about the future of capitalism. Uh, but what you're describing is, ba is basically the exact opposite. I mean, it's that the forces inside capitalism have made have, have, have taken all that dynamism away. So, you know, you've explained the kind of primary level sort of ways in which that's happening. But is this, you know, is this a kind of a disease of affluence? Is it because we're so well off that we're just our... our, our are willingness to take risks changes as a society and it's this is all a product of that or is it uh, you know are we talking about so is it sort of societal and psychological or is it um you know more more purely like economic do you, do you see the distinction oh absolutely and i think there are many explanations behind that mm. not just sort of the uh the specific factors that uh, i've gone into in the book um which are more related to so that the way capitalism as a system has developed rather than the way society has developed uh, uh, changes in psychological perceptions, changes in identities, etc., mm -hmm. uh, which I think is also, they are also very important in order to understand why we have entered a society where I wouldn't say sort of that we are too affluent and complacent. I, th I don't think it's that which is um, making it far more difficult to get broader radical changes through innovation in societies these days. I think there are other factors. But but, but getting back to Schumpeter first, mm. um, I mean, Schumpeter had this idea that capitalism is going to innovate itself to death. Uh, it's such a successful uh, uh, type of economy that is going to provoke a lot of opposition to it. Um, and in a sense, I think you can you can find that type of Schumpeterian logic behind uh, lots of the stuff we're seeing in the debate these days. Mm -hmm. I mean, trying to explain the rise of 
populism or the rise of sort of anger uh, yeah. in in the electorates by suggesting that well this is a sort of reaction to the fact that robots are taking all the jobs and we live with these sort of perceptions that mm-hmm. you know in the future there's not going to be any space left at all for human beings to actually have a have a job and mm-hmm. to contribute in 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 that classic way to to the economy um Schumpeter himself i mean he's changed his mind when he sort of went closer to to sort of the end of his life i yeah. mean his his prediction about capitalism came in a book from 1942 and and about i think it was about 10 years later he said sort of he'd been overly pessimistic about uh, about capitalism um i think when you go back to other uh, other books by Schumpeter um and also uh, other economists and and you try to find sort of what type of model or what type of capitalism that we're seeing today what, mm. what does it sort of resemble in terms of what we've seen in history i think it's much closer to the sort of rentier forms of capitalism that we had in the 19th century with uh, um, where we haven't really seen that profound change in ownership capitalism that came in the 20th century um, where you had still sort of a lot of people that um, were clipping uh, coupons, as uh, Lenin once put it, and mm. didn't want to see anything else happening through the capitalist system uh, than that they were supposed to get that 7% in return every mm. year. So they didn't want to have a form of capitalism where uh, their investees actually took risks and yep. where they uh, perhaps started to innovate, started to compete with themselves. Um, um, and I think that's that's pretty much where we ended up right now as well with this broad changes that we've seen in institutional ownership over the past 40, 50 years that we have sort of rentier form of capitalism. We have owners that they want to have that 7% or 8% every year in return. And if they don't get that in return, well, I mean, then they're going to get into difficulties mm. because they have obligations to all the people that are saving for the pensions in their in, in the pension plans. Uh, so that's what they want. They want to have... A predictable return, a stable return doesn't. For them, it's much much better to have sort of five percent every year who, than who, to have ten percent next year and two percent the other year. Who are the who, when you say they? I mean, who 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 are who? What class of people is that? I mean, who who are you talking about? You talk about sort of the managerial class, the the. the... Well, I mean, I, I think sort of if you if you look at. Um, the large institutions that control mm. virtually sort of every company yeah. in the Western world these days and the way they behave, the way they write ownership instructions for the companies that they operate in, the way they appoint board members, what they what what, what the perceptions they have about what the board is how the board is going to perform in the company and what instructions the board is going to get give to management and uh, what 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 type of corporate behavior they expect. I mean that's that's where you see it. Mm. Um how sort of this infusion of different forms of owners are gradually lowering the expectation that these are firms that are actually going to do something radical with the market in the future. They don't want that. They want the companies to basically do next year what you did last year because that's the safest way to to get your predictable return. Well, one of the things I really like in your argument that... Um which is kind of hiding in plain sight about what capitalism, the ways in which capitalism has gone wrong, is to do with cash and, and, and businesses and, you know, the classic capitalist model of borrowing cash to take a punt on an idea, basically. Um, and, and actually, the opposite is true of, 
the modern economy today. So maybe do you want to talk through that kind of, um, you know, what's gone wrong there? Sure. I mean, I think it's it's one of the perhaps uh, strongest indications of that something is wrong in, mm. in, in the way that we have organized our capitalist system today, that we have moved from sort of 150 years of the corporate sector being uh, sort of a net user of surplus capital in the economy to being a net contributor of surplus capital to the economy. I mean, the whole idea about the economy sort of is that you have um, entrepreneurs that have ideas, they mm. have ambitions, they have a spirit, but they don't have cash, they don't have the money in order to invest and to build that business operation. So they borrow from others. Um, now we have an economy where the corporate sector is actually contribute, contributing with cash and capital to the rest of the economy. Mm. Um, we have a corporate sector which is brimming with cash, that have surplus liquidity in a way which is just absurd. and. And I think that's sort of the strongest perhaps indication we have about the temperature of capitalism these days that we have so many companies in the world that don't know what they're going to do with the money. So they, you know, basically lend it back to the rest economy at a small interest rate because they they can't find any mm-hmm. other usage for it. There's um I think there's a bit of a gap between your account of some of this stuff and the account of and the direction capitalism has gone and the, and the account the sort of. I would say the the mainstream, pessimistic mainstream account of the way things have gone wrong. Um, so to take corporate culture as an example, I think if you asked about if in most accounts, if you if you read of the sort of golden age of consumer capitalism in America, let's say, at the centre of that was a big, a big employer who um, gave you a job that was probably your whole career uh, was kind of a very benevolent um, organisation in terms of. Um, benefits and pensions and uh, all these sorts of things uh, and then the the account of today is one of sort of fragility and uncertainty and um, and um, increasingly sort of narrowly rewarded group of people so you know if you look at that do you dispute that or do you just think that this, these are sort of separate parts of the same story do, do you see my point because because it would have, you would have, it would have, that account would imply that today was a more um, disruptive and um, turbulent kind of economy than the one in which big companies looked after you and treated you well as an employer, employee, and so on. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do see what you're saying, yeah. and I mean, it's I mean, variations of that argument you can find, you know, in many different places mm. of the debate right now. I I I would take a different view, and I would say that we are probably a bit blind to history if we think that we are living in a very disruptive age in terms of uh, um, how much labor is forced to change as a consequence Mm -hmm. of how the economy works. Um, I mean, you can start with the the obvious things. If we look at um, labor market churn rates, so basically how many jobs are destroyed every year, how many new jobs are created, and we see a development over a long period of time that these churn rates have been going down. So we have fewer new jobs that are created, but also fewer jobs that are being destroyed as a consequence of normal capitalist development. Um, we can look at other indicators about labor market dynamism in the sense, um, everything from, um, well, on, on, on the entrepreneurship side, we can look sort of at, at uh, 
sort of classic uh, entry and exit factors for uh, for new corporations, how many companies that are going bust every year, how many new companies that are being created. We can look at the average age of firms. We can look at the average time that, an, that a sort of a staff stays with the same company. Um, and on all these scores, we are moving in a direction which is opposite to this illusion of a highly disruptive economy mm-hmm. where labor is is forced to change so much uh, and much more than in the past as a consequence of, of capitalist competition. I think my my best argument against that, and which is also one of sort of the sources of inspirations I had when I started to write this book, came from a discussion that I had with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is about five, six years ago now. Um, and I mean, she was very old. Uh, she's she's still alive and still even older now. And I went to visit her, and and I, I observed her morning routine uh, because at this time she was around sort of eighty seven, eighty eight years old. And I could see that every morning she started by calling around her friends um, to see sort of how you know ask questions mm-hmm. how they are you know has the night been okay, um, etc. Uh, one of the purposes of these calls was to figure out, you know, do you want, do you want to meet up for lunch? And um, and then sort of as soon as he'd done that round of calls, she called up them up again in order to, you know, figure out where we're going to meet and and at what time we're going to meet to have lunch. And that took uh, sort of around two and a half, three hours every morning to do. So I, t- I said to her, well, you know, Granny, you know what you should do? You should you should build your own app. And then you should give that, that app to all your friends so they can just go into the smartphone every morning and say, you know, they're available. Yes, you know, exactly. I'm I'd available. Like to go for My herring today. Or... Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> and she, she looked at me and she laughed and said, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build that app. I'm going to build that app. Sure. <laughs> uh, but then she, she, then she said, but let me tell you one thing about you, uh, Frederick, she told me. And it is, I mean, I've seen you having all these fancy jobs. I mean, you've been working for government, you've been working for a prime minister, you've been at the financial market. But you know what is the most striking thing about you? She asked me. And I said, no, Granny, I, I don't know. What, what's, what's the most striking thing about you? Yeah. And she said, well, you never change. You always do what you've done in the past. You, you come with new gadgets with sort of iPads, iPhones, computers, but you still do exactly the same thing. You never change. And then she started telling me sort of about what she had gone through on the labor market as a consequence of the introduction of new technology, mm-hmm. as a consequence of, of, you know, basically capitalist forces that have pushed different forms of production out of the market in the past and created opportunities for new forms of production. And by the time she had reached my age, uh, not only sort of having children and and sort of built up a new family. She'd had around 12 different jobs. She had been squeezed out from her jobs five, six times because technology has created new opportunities or forced her to change because her old job wasn't still going to be there as a consequence of new technology. I've not seen anything like that in my own private life. Uh, What technology has done for me and for my generation, I think also for my parents' generation, is, is mostly just to continue to be whoever you are. I mean, Frederick is going to be more Frederick as a consequence of these technologies, mm-hmm. but they haven't had this sort of disruptive effect which have pushed us in order to change profoundly as a consequence of new technology. There are, of course, people uh, that have seen 
you know, the job's gone away as a consequence of the technology, but they're actually far and fewer than, than most people think. So, you're, I mean, just to go back to that question, I mean, it's really, it's really just you think that the story is wrong. I mean, at the end of the day, the story about the good old days is just wrong. Um, well, I mean, compared to today, I mean. I mean, look at another thing. I mean, I'm, I mean, what I find quite striking right now is that if you employ someone, it comes with uh, you know, a pretty large package these days. So if you think about sort of that old version of the benevolent capitalist who was going to organize life mm-hmm. for their employers, well, what do you have today? I mean, sort of, if you employ someone today, you need to cover up for the deficiencies of the welfare state. You need to, you know, do more on pensions. You need to do more of a healthcare insurance in order to make sure that, you know, if if you get a flu, you need to have, uh, you need to get some medicine pretty quickly. And if you if you want them back on 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 the job, um, special arrangement for uh, for for uh, for staff that have children and needs to sort of work more flexibly as a consequence of that. Um, you have to pay for, you know, gym classes and other types of sort of, you know, I wouldn't say hobbies, but you know, stuff that perks is good for, for the, yeah, yeah. It's perks, of course. I mean, stuff which is good for, for the organization as well. But, uh, but, but this is the package as it looks today. And we're getting more and more into a labor market where a lot of people feel sort of they can't change because they're afraid they're going to lose so much of the real income they have through many of these perks. So that sort of lock-in effect on the labor market, I think, has become far more stronger because people are not changing jobs as often today as they did in the past. Mm-hmm. And just to move, move the argument forward a little bit, um, you know, are you making an argument, you make, is, is your point here that this is, a inevit- this is an inevitable sort of part of capitalism, a sort of reverse Schumpeter, if you will, or are you saying that for a couple of policy deci- because of a couple of policy decisions and, and specific things about the moment we find ourselves in, this is happening, and in 50 years' time, it's an open question as to, as to whether we're growing at 8% or 0.5%? Well, I think every economy um, has the ability to have sustained high growth on the back of high productivity growth. I don't think any economy is sort of destined for any type of particular development. Mm. I think it's... But there are some, there are some people out there that say that there's only so much technological change out there, basically, and that you can... You, we grab the, low, the low-hanging fruit first, then, then we have to reach even higher, and eventually we kind of run out of you know, ways in which to, 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 to innovate and to, to, to become more productive. Well, I mean, I... You know, that may be a situation I don't believe so, but I, I, I simply don't believe I'm going to sort of through my life uh, experience that point in time mm-hmm. where we've sort of basically uh, uh, discovered all the main interesting things that there is to discover in life and that there isn't anything we can do in order to change qualitatively uh, the way we behave in the economy. I think there are you know profound opportunities to become so much more productive, even you know, it doesn't matter if you sort of an affluent... Uh, economy like the sort of the UK economy or if you sort of a growing emerging market in Asia I mean you, mm-hmm. the, the capacity for getting people to change and work much smarter is I mean I would say it's it's infinite so I don't think we're at the point where we need to worry about sort of have we discovered all the major things in life mm-hmm. and and as a consequence we need to adjust to sort of a scenario where the economy is just going to grow at very low rates mm-hmm. in the future I don't think that's true at all and so, if you're I mean, building on that, and your and, and your your answer to the argument, what's your big kind of? If you have sort of thirty seconds or two minutes with a 
high level policymaker in a Western economy, what's your kind of, and, and you want to tell them that, you know, want to get the message through them about what they should be doing on innovation. Is there kind of a, what's on your, the top of your list of mistakes they, they're making at the moment, misconceptions and, and so on? Well, the most important thing for policymakers is that they can start by taking away a lot of wasteful regulations that exist that is just destroying initiative that is destroying or reducing the space for experimentation in the economy. So start by doing that. Uh, start by creating this sort of idea of permissionless innovation where mm. uh, people don't have to fear that new innovation they come with is actually going to be blocked from the market in the future simply because you have regulators or politicians that are scared that there may be you know, some consequences that uh, uh, they're not willing to accept. So that's the first thing. The other thing is to start by, by changing, uh, break sort of the link between the pension system and ownership of firms, to find other capital market solutions in order to avoid that, that the fact that our economy is getting older and older, that we have sort of a, a sort of a silver head type of development in the future where we're going to have more and more retired people, that that automatically, automatically is going to lead to a capitalist structure where uh, these institutions are going to have even more power than they have today. So break that link. Let's talk now about um, sort of the big political trends of the last couple of years and these economic stories you're, you're telling. Um, you know, do you, do you kind of basically see the populist surge in Europe and I guess the US too, um, do you see that as a consequence of, of, of these economic trends and of this, of this lo- low growth, low innovation kind of thing or are they completely unrelated? No, I mean, I, I, I think there are sort of linkages between there. I think sort of that they are part of uh, uh, a broader change in society. I mean, if we, first of all, if we are going to talk about many of these parties that represent sort of nationalist populist views, um, especially sort of if you take away the type of countries like Greece mm-hmm. uh, that have gone through a very profound economic crisis that have prompted sort of a more, you know, leftist type of populism. Um, so if you concentrate on on the other countries, I think it's sort of one thing which is staring you in the face, which is that, well, you know, this rise is pretty much linked up with migration. And I don't think you can get away with explaining away what is happening uh, with the Western opinion without taking account of, of migration policy mm-hmm. and, and what's happened there. So that, you know, I, th- I think that has to be said in, in, in the first place because so often when we begin to talk about other factors at play, and especially economic factors at play, um, we have a discussion which is almost totally divorced from what what are the sort of the obvious conclusions that you have to draw from when you're looking at broad sociological survey data, opinion data, uh, data that exists on on sort of psychological personalities and how that have developed over the um, over time. The the economic part of it, and where I have a profoundly different view from most other people uh, when it comes to sort of the broad aggregate development that we've seen in the Western economy is that I think the rise of populism or the uh, the growing level of anger 
in electorates more generally is more a consequence of a non-dynamic, low-growth economy where people gradually have been adjusting to a life when there is not going to be much change. It's more a consequence of that than an economy which is changing so fast so people feel uh, anxious about their own economic livelihood in the future, the fear that they're going to do, lose their job or the fear that you know China is, is stealing our industrial sector or what have you. So I think it's, it's in order to understand sort of why we have seen this development, I think we have to understand psychological perceptions about change and radical change in society rather than, you know, trying to blame migrants, Chinese mm-hmm. for stealing our jobs mm-hmm. or for robots to uh, uh, stealing our future jobs. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at MintMobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And so, but so you're confident then in the sense that if there is, if you somehow, if you find the innovation and if you find the productivity and, and the growth and so on, that the link still exists between that, those positive changes and um, wages and living standards for ordinary people. Because I mean, the, the, the more devastating criticism of the economic system we have at the moment is that there's a, there's a, there's a cog loose in it, right? Which means that even if you fix those problems, the gains from that are only going to go to the top. whatever it is. No, on the contrary. I mean, a dynamic economy, an economy um, 
where you have high levels of productivity growth is an economy which is going to be more beneficial to workers than to capitalists. We have a system right now where capital is idle, where the corporate sector is contributing with capital to the rest of the economy because they can't find any other use for it in, in, in their own businesses. That's an economy which is going to benefit the 1% or the 10% because it's an economy where you are redistributing um, a lot of the economic uh, values that are being created rather than having a system that is creating so much more uh, uh, economic value. And, and that's the pattern we've seen through history as well. It's, you know, when, you ha- when capital is idle, when capital is not forced to a lot of change in order to survive in the future, and by capital I mean companies, mm-hmm. capitalist owners, when they are not forced to change a lot, um, that's when you're going to have sort of a low-yielding type of economy. And that's mm-hmm. when you know, the distributional profile of the growth you're seeing is going to be pretty poor. Mm-hmm. So when we look, for instance, at sort of factors like um, um, what is called the functional income distribution, where we're trying to figure out sort of is it capital or labor mm-hmm. which is getting uh, sort of getting getting all the new uh, goods from a growing economy, uh, the good or the benefits from a growing economy, and over time, sort of there's this rule of thumb that well, roughly, you know. Workers take seventy percent, and capital takes thirty percent. And and what we've seen over the past past sort of ten to fifteen years, especially in America to some extent in Europe, is that is that now the distribution has begun to change a bit. So capital is actually taking more. But but this factor, and it's been evidenced by lots of different studies, has to do with an economy which is reducing the pace of productivity and the pace of change. This is an economy which is not forced to change that much. And as a consequence, you get sort of idle capital and idle capital means that, you know, they don't have to, they don't have to do much in order to get, get the returns they're having. Do you think then politically, I mean, if you're a centre-right politician, say, and you're, you broadly want to, you broadly think capitalism is a good thing, you broadly think you want to uh, uh, promote growth and promote business and so on. Um, is the mistake that many on the centre-right have made to sort of conflate biz- pro-business and pro-market? It seems to me your work is in that vein of argument that is that you need to distinguish between what's good for the market and therefore the economy and what's good for a business uh, lobby group that tells you that insurers want X change. Absolutely. There is a profound difference between pro- being pro-market and being pro-business. Um, there is a profound difference between being in favour of a system of regulation which is going to create very low barriers of entry to markets compared with a system where you hand out a lot of privileges to incumbent firms either through high and restrictive regulation or by different subsidies that are getting and right now i mean we as i said i mean we've been uh, on a longer term trend when that wave of economic liberalism that the Western world went through for 25 years, when it's ended, and we are um, sort of on our way into a different type of economy. And now we're seeing, I mean, just today, um, um, the French and German government has launched this new idea about a new industrial policy in Europe and about changing competition policy with the effect of creating huge European champions. And, of course, they want to do that on the back of the the merger proposal between Alstom and Siemens in mm. creating a new uh, rail champion in Europe. 
Um, but that would have, you know, come at the expense of consumers. That it's a company that would have near monopoly on on twelve markets around Europe. Um, but I think sort of my fear is that we're seeing more and more examples of this kind. I mean, we have a president in America who is highly mercantilistic and highly sort of into uh, privileging his own rich business uh, uh, colleagues, mm. doesn't believe in profound market principles where you're trying to open the space for competition, where you're trying to reduce the barriers to competition. Um, and I think, going back to your point, and I think this is very important, and one that I've been trying to advise most of my center-right friends in politics, which is that if you want the capitalist system to survive, if you want to have sort of an open free market economy, you have to be the ones that start diagnosing what's wrong with capitalism right now and why it's producing not just an income distribution which is skewed, but also why it creates reduced space for competition on markets, why we are virtually on every market we look at, we're seeing more and more concentration and more and more companies that have market power of the kind that they didn't have in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's not an argument sort of, as we usually hear against sort of Amazon or Google or mm -hmm. Facebook or any of those, because I tend to sort of be of the opposite argument here that we should actually applaud them. We should encourage them because they are the ones that are bringing new competition into markets that mm -hmm. for a long time have been pretty stale uh, and haven't delivered much change in the past. But when you look at most other markets, you know, everything from retail to infrastructure markets to financial markets, you know, it's an abysmal development that we've seen in terms of, of companies getting more and more powerful, position themselves in a market, on the market in a way which reduces life and death competition. They are sort of kings or queens at the crown of a market hierarchy where they determine what the conditions for competition is going to be in these markets. And I think that's profoundly uh, not just wrong, but I think it's profoundly dangerous uh, if capitalism and the market economy get associated with that type of behavior. And just maybe it's a slightly cheeky last question, but do you, when you look, you know, people you talk to in Europe and in the West Germany, are there kind of, if you were to pick out some politicians or parties who kind of understand this better than others and countries where their governments maybe are doing better than others and who comes to mind? Or is it just a kind of desperate wasteland of... <laughs> no, I, I think you're going to find individual politicians that not just understand, but that are willing to act in order to get some mm. change. But I think sort of the the broader development is that they are, got, they are getting fewer and fewer. Parties are generally losing... Um, that anchor in economic liberalism that many of them had in the past, uh, that broadest centrist consensus that both centre-left and the centre-right, in effect, would pursue the same type of policy. It didn't matter so much which one was going to be in government. They would pursue the same type of policies because economic necessities or economic opportunities just pointed in one type of direction. I think that we're not there anymore. Um, and we are seeing a development where there is gradually a consensus being developed between the left, the right, and the center, which is that we need to have more interventions in economy. Mm -hmm. And that can either be that we need to you know, create national champions or that we need to 
um, raise barriers to competition, either from abroad or from new technologies, that we need to have type of regulations that are going to slow down uh, the pace of change in the economy. Mm. Um, so if you want to introduce AI-based new um, services, um, it's not that governments are going to be against it, but they're going to regulate it in a way that it's just going to take a very long time for many of the benefits that come through that type of change to ripple through the entire economy and generate benefits to the broad masses. That was Frederick Erickson on the Innovation Illusion. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.